0: Hello, and welcome back to the Product Launch Podcast. I'd like to welcome my guest today, Stephen Skleroo. Stephen is a product and technology executive with extensive experience building and growing companies both large and small. He is also the CEO of Synaptic. Synaptic provides strategic AI and data science services to information, technology, and product officers. Hello, Stephen. How are you? And thanks for being here.
1: Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely, I like uh, for our listeners that can see the video. I like your background. You've got the uh, the guitars hanging up on the wall. There, are you? Uh, do you collect?
1: Uh, you know, I haven't played guitar uh, for about twenty years, and then COVID hit, and I figured that's kind of the best hobby that I can uh, get back into without having to worry about being around a lot of other people.
0: It's awesome. I love it. I've done actually the same, so we'll have to geek out about that as well too. But uh, kind of before we go too much further, I'd love it if you could give our audience a little bit more information about your background so they can learn a little bit more about you.
1: Sure, sure. So I've been in the you know, technology space for about 25 years now. Started my career primarily at Ernst & Young. So I was working on very large consulting projects as a very young professional. Um, and, you know, I spent the three years at Ernst Young just absorbing all the bright people's minds around me. Uh, I like to say I was kind of the dumbest person there, and I happened to be working with really sharp people that were way beyond my skills, and uh, I worked really hard, learned as much as I could from them, and then, you know, took off from there, but, uh, you know, my background is basically, you know, three big companies and going on 11 startups now, Um, so I've been in and out of, you know, innovation inside of big companies. I've been you know, on executive teams, building uh, product companies and, you know, about a third of my career services and the other two thirds of products. So I've seen a lot. I've worked with a lot of great people and I'm just excited about where technology is going and how it can help people around the world, really.
0: Same. I'll add to that as well, too. And the quote that comes to mind based on what you've said is, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly.
0: I love that as well, exactly. too always looking for new opportunities to learn. So spot on there. So thank you for providing the background. Uh, Part of the topic that we wanted to talk about today uh, with your extensive experience in building product companies and the startup experience that you have as well also was not just building products, but in particular building data-driven products. So we're going to dive into that a little bit further kind of, but before we get there, especially since our audience has tended to be uh, people that have a lot of experience in product or looking to learn more about product. Can you talk a little bit about how your background has been influenced by your product management experience and how that's led you to where you are today?
1: Sure, sure. So really, um, you know, first 10 years of my career was, you know, an engineer. I kind of grew up through um, software development, starting off with Java in the 90s and kind of moved up through, you know, an architect and eventually a CTO. And um, particularly in the middle of my CTO, uh, you know, career, I realized that is really frustrating building software that no one used. You know, there's just nothing worse than you know having your team work really, really hard, and get really pumped up about you know the software that they're delivering to find out that you know users really just don't engage in it. And so I had a number of experiences, and this is probably around 2008 to 2010, where I was leading a, a technology team in a startup. And um, you know, we worked really hard. We were building applications across five mobile devices. You know, this is when iPhone just came out and Android came out. And I, you know, I was kind of the fallback BlackBerry developer because no one wanted to work on that. Um, but But, you know, after several rounds of launching products and seeing, you know, our user base really grow fast and then just completely plummet, you know, I realized that, um, you know, software is not just about the technology. It's about understanding your customers and your users and that all those investments made in building things, you know, can all ultimately be for nothing uh, if you don't really understand what compels users to engage with your product. Uh, so that's really when I transitioned into product management. Um, so this was in a startup company. I was a CTO, but I just took it upon myself to learn everything I could about product management I had a number of people in my network that, you know, had focused in that area. So I went from, you know, kind of driving the technology of the company and making sure that, you know, we were developing things on time to, you know, doing customer research interviews and um, designing concepts and testing concepts. And it was a big shift in my career. But what I realized, but there there was so much more to learn around building the technology to make a company successful. And a lot of that had to do with understanding, you know, your customers and the market. And, and even the finances. So what really compelled me in product management to continue down that path was to learn all these other aspects about business because product tends to interact with every one of those pieces. And, and it's an interesting role in that it's more of an influencing role than it is you know direct management. Um, so going back to my services days, it kind of gave me new opportunities to learn.
0: Yeah, I would certainly say that that's a huge part of the role, right? transitioning yourself out of that, focusing almost exclusively on the technology and now focusing as much as you can on the customer and in particular, the opportunity to learn, which is something you've said already as well too. So agreed, Uh, or really, I should say, couldn't agree more. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So what I'd love to kind of hear a little bit more about from you as well too, because I know we've talked about this before is a little bit more about you building Synaptic and what that's enabled you to be able to do when it comes to you know this stage where you are in your career and building additional products. Uh, I think there's a really interesting angle to that and I think it's an absolute win-win scenario, but I'd love to hear you kind of lay out how that process has developed for you so that we can explain it for others as well.
1: Sure, um, so I've, I've always been an entrepreneur, um, but I've been a kind of conservative entrepreneur as it relates to financial risk. And I think a lot of that has to do with just you know being a good uh, father, husband, et cetera. And making sure there's kind of some stability, you know, in our in our lives. Um, so that the path for me was one of, um, you know, uh, quite a few uh, uh, companies, different experiences, and um, you know, trying to learn as much as I could from, you know, both. Um, proactive, uh, you know, reading and learning, but also, you know, from mistakes. <laughs> so, so I go back to, you know, all these companies that I've been in, and it's like, okay, what did I learn, you know, that can help me be a better um, CEO, founder? And, you know, what would I not do based on these experiences that I've had working for other people? And so, you know, I got to the point in my career, and this is about uh, five years ago, so 20 years in, where I just felt like you know every new company I joined was Groundhog's Day, right? And it was like, okay, you know, I, I've been there before, and this is what I do, and I wasn't in a position to influence that completely. Um, and so, for that reason, I just you know realized, no, and I was also in a better financial situation. I had to finally move away from kind of working for other people, and and start a company. And so, uh, you know, I have to admit there's a lot of things I still had left to learn right so I would never been a full-time salesperson right and and you know I'd worked in companies where we built sales software and I managed sales systems but actually learning um, what it takes to sell and going through the you know the emotional roller coaster sales was very new to me so you know ultimately I realized that a lot of the stress in my life came from you know, bureaucracy politics and other things and 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 when I remove that part of my day to day, all of a sudden I have a lot more positive energy and time uh, to learn and to grow and to serve customers.
0: Agreed. I it's it's uh, super interesting to hear you describe your journey as well too, because I know we've talked about this as well. But mine's relatively similar also. And like you said, you know you have the groundhog day effect, but then when you do take the leap, there's so much more to learn and how you react to that, of course, can have a big impact on kind of where you go from there. You get hooked on the ability to kind of continuously learn there, and it just helps you continuously build momentum in the right direction, but there's always more to learn. And uh, that's really where a product person should be, (laughs) I would say, so good experience there too. Um, Can you talk, we've talked about this previously, but I'd love to hear you articulate the value of taking this approach specifically for our audience. And that's, can you talk about the, the value in why selling services can be a great way to identify future product opportunities.
1: Absolutely, you know, and, and this is still a work in progress, but um, you know, my experience in services earlier in my career was um, a, a joy in the diversity of work. Um, so you work on a project, um, you do a lot of great stuff, and then you go on to the next project. And that diversity is, is a lot of fun because you learn a lot of different things meet different people, et cetera. Um, Moving into kind of pure product companies, I think the challenge there has always been, you know, how do you get capital before you have something that's worthy of, of charging money for Right. And um, you know, my early experiences there were, you know, convince people that you have something when you really don't um, get their money and then, you know, be very careful in your cash in your clock to make sure you turn that around into some sort of fit for these investors. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of my experiences there were very painful. Um, you know, there's only so long uh, you have to kind of prove that you can make money. Um, and, and likewise, uh, you know, you have, you know, a number of people that have given you money that are constantly looking two different sides of of the world, you know, I realized that um, if you could um, kind of bootstrap your own company through services, and when I say your own company, I mean your own products through services, uh, then you, you know, can kind of own your own destiny, right? Now, um, this all sounds easy and great, but, you know, a number of companies that I worked for started services and tried to become product. And quite a few started product and fell back to services. And so I think the tough part is that um, they're very different business models. And, you know, if you're trying to do both and you don't have experience in both, I think it becomes very deliver, very difficult to um, kind of do well at either one individually. <laughs> um, and so, so you know, I love the idea of, you know, bootstrapping product office services. I think that um, it takes a certain type of Person to be able to pull that off. And um, you know, probably one of my more important learnings has been, in many cases, if you do find a product through services, you're kind of best off cleaving that out as a separate entity so that it can run as its own business model. Um, so, I, you know, I don't have the the magic recipe here, but, but what, what excites me about services, again, is that diversity work. And as you're doing all that diverse work, you start finding pat- patterns in the market, right? So. If you're doing projects that, you know, are solving the same problem over and over again, either within an industry or across industries, you know, that's a good opportunity to invest a little bit more in product research and market research and determine, hey, is this a viable, uh, you know, project to turn into a product? Um, Now, of course, you gotta be very careful about IP. A lot of um, services, projects, you know, you're doing work for hire, your clients own that IP, so that's something that's very important. Uh, but also, you got to be careful that you don't uh, assume that the market will buy something that a few of your clients have bought, right? So I've seen people do that before. Um, and then you know ultimately, you know, I guess the fundamental thing I've learned between product and service is it's really not worth getting other people's money until you've proved the business model. So while I love the idea of raising capital and people celebrate it all the time, I think at the end of the day, what they should be celebrating is they've found a business model that actually makes Money, um, profits, and that's the time to get outside investment if you need it to grow faster.
0: Yeah, that last part is a really powerful component to it, and I think that's often fairly misunderstood in terms of understanding at what sequence to do these things. So your examples are very helpful, and I would echo them as well too. That's been very much largely my experience, and I also did have some very early, very intense uh, lessons learned some expensive and uh, some some experiences that really threw me um, as part of kind of following what i thought were going to be the steps towards success and like everything else it's usually the exact opposite of that (laughs) so figured it out the hard way but luckily still hanging around and uh, making a lot more progress now from those intense lessons learned so thank you for sharing that Um, and to kind of get dive deeper into what we wanted to talk about um, as, as part of this episode as well, too. You'd mentioned, you know, collecting that data, understanding those patterns, and looking for those opportunities, right? And to me, I think that's a great place to, to introduce what it means to be building a data-driven product with the emphasis on the data-driven component to that. Can you talk about more about, to you, what that means?
1: Yeah, so, um I guess there's two sides of this. One is, um, you know, as a CEO of a company and someone that, you know, obviously was a technologist and is now focused on, on data science and AI. You know, I'm very compelled to try to understand the system and the data that drives our company. Um, and, you know, I think we can all uh, empathize with this. It's, it's hard to eat your own dog food, right? You're running really fast. And, you know, you want to be data driven, but you also, you know, got a lot of things going on around you. So I think from from one standpoint, as far as, as far as operating the company, I think it's important to get some systems in place early and to, you know, have the cadence in place to go back and look at your data across your systems and see if you find patterns. And, and this is just simple data analysis. But, you know, for many um, companies I've worked for, they didn't even do this, right? You know, there was no kind of unifying formula behind the company that they were trying to prove is working or not, kind of going back to that business formula that we talked about earlier. So so to me, data-driven is about um, not relying 100% on data, but making sure that you have systems to collect data and that you're analyzing that data to help inform systems, inform decisions, you know, at least on a monthly basis. Um, Now, the other side of it um, is more kind of data-driven products. And to me, you know, this has been a a really, really interesting area. Obviously, artificial intelligence is a very hot space right now, but, you know, my learnings in the space that kind of stem back to around 2010 are that um, the hard part is the data, (laughs) so uh, You know, there's lots of, um, you know, success stories out there. And if you dig into what it was that made them successful, it really comes down to the data that was used to um, train models that are now creating value. Um, And that's really hard. Um, So, you know, in in a number of our projects, um, you know, our clients would like us to um, tell them upfront what the accuracy of a model will be. And, and the reality is that um, you know it's a function of many things, but one of the number one things is the data that's fed into the model. And so there's a whole shift in thinking around software products as it relates to those that are driven by AI. And you know we're kind of moving away from you know what I call rules-based systems, you know if-then-else type stuff, to systems that are are you know creating inferences based on the data that are fed into them. And, you know, no longer can you give someone a requirement spec and say, hey, go build this and you can check off each of the things that were built. It's a very much an experimental, you know, iterative process that I think is, you know, even more experimental than, you know, the agile type methodologies that we're all used to. So it's incredibly fascinating, but, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to data. You know, how do you collect the data? How do you label the data? How do you evaluate the data, you know, as it's being used and change the data? And that, um, it was really a new topic for most executives at this point. They, they don't really understand that. And that's something that we help, you know, our clients understand and, and take advantage of.
0: Well put. And like you, I've heard data-driven being used more commonly nowadays. And I think that's a good thing as well, too. Right? We start talking about how can we take from what may have been, like, or emotional decisions previously. And let's replace that with some actual data behind this because that comes from real substance, right? But I think you've done a good job as well too to kind of articulate the challenges there as well. You need to, number one, you need to get the data. And number two, you need to have a certain level of quality of data. And then you have to have the process to be able to process the data, right? So be able to understand what it is that you're learning from that. So plenty of work to be done. But once you get that built the way you would like it, um, as you mentioned, I think the, the value that you get out of it is absolutely always worth kind of that investment as you, you know, keep a relatively fluid concept of that you're going to need to maintain it, but update it moving forward as well. Um,
1: yeah, what I find fascinating in the projects that we we do, you know, in some cases, our clients know what they want to create. Um, and so it's a, it's a matter of kind of, to your point, kind of collecting and processing and whatnot, the data. Um, but then there's other clients that are like, hey, we have... Interesting data. We don't have no idea, you know, what's in it, but can you explore it? And so I think more and more companies are realizing that they're sitting on a data asset, it could be a new, you know, revenue channel for them. Um, but they just haven't had anyone that has deep analytical skills to find patterns and coupling that with their business domain knowledge. So that's very exciting for many companies.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. I it's fascinating to think that. People are taking that approach, but you're absolutely right, right? The patterns and the trends lie within the data somewhere, but we have to have the capacity to be able to extract from that, to understand what it is, to know what we can do with it. So agreed, yeah, that's really cool. Uh, So my next question for you as well too is, okay, let's assume that we've kind of built this process out. It's starting to generate results from us. How, what's your best advice in terms of knowing how and when we have the early signs of what is a product essentially worth building?
1: Yeah. So, um, <laughs> this is a tough one because I, I feel like um, it's an art and a science at the same time, right? So, uh, you know, I was, I was mentioning this story, I think back in, I don't know, 2010 or something, uh, you know, we launched some products. We even got, you know, featured on the Blackberry App Store and a couple of other areas. And I remember how excited I was, you know, seeing. 25,000, 100,000 people, you know, downloading our app, you know, watching the numbers go up. And I was like, we finally made it, right? Um, But then, you know, a week later, I see all of them dropping off, right? And so, you know, I think there's, you know, going back to our data-driven conversation, I think part of it, obviously, is is watching, you know, the data of your users. You know, I I like to think of it as kind of the exhaust as they're interacting with your products. Um, So while it's exciting to acquire lots of users, the reality, you know, many businesses, you need to keep them engaged, right? Because a lot of your subscription revenue comes from engagement. Um, so, so you know, that's one aspect of, of, of analysis. The other, I think, equally important um, is to get more of the qualitative feedback, right? So I think, you know, as a technologist, you know, early in my career, the last thing I wanted to do is talk to a customer, right? It's like, I want to go build this stuff. Um, but the reality is, you know, you know, dipping a toe in and, and you know, testing what your customer's Think and feel is really, really important, um, and unfortunately, you know, it's not a simple process, right? Because everybody's different, um, and so one of the techniques that I picked up in my career was, you know, obviously interviewing, but but um, really looking for the emotion in the interviews, uh, and really trying to ascertain, you know, what one of my mentors called as the wow factors, right? Um, what are the wows that people express either your product today or a concept that you're pitching to them and you know that's where kind of the art comes in because it's sometimes it's not clear we all communicate differently but you know body language can mean a lot expressions can mean a lot and it's a combination of kind of both that data-driven approach and this qualitative approach of interviewing that to me is really critical in understanding where your product is and what's super challenging is all this changes over time so you can't just do this you know once a year and think everything's great you know given how fast our markets moving you know i kind of go back to you know product research is really you know kind of a monthly or at minimum a quarterly process and you know before you know it a competitor can pop up with you know something that is much more compelling than you have and you know take away all your customers So, um, you know, I like to think of it as, um, you know, a never-ending process (laughs) and, you know, the times that I've um, been involved in kind of monolithic research, you know, it doesn't um, continue to provide value after a certain period of time, right? It decays um, just given the market. And so um, I think it's really important to have that product research and market research component always tied in. And then from a a product management perspective, looking at that exhaust data regularly.
0: Yeah, you've hit on a very important, more of the kind of advanced concept when it comes to product management that I would definitely want listeners to take away from this conversation in that not just your market, but your product are both dynamic and they should be. So you build the process and if you're following the process correctly and you're getting the kind of value out of it, you will understand not, where not just where the where the market is and where your product is, but the gap between the two. And then you'll be looking, you'll be working to reduce that as much as possible moving forward. Because like you said, it's a process. It's not a milestone. You're not looking to kind of achieve that, put a flag in the ground and okay, we're done. Now we can just sit back and collect. That's not how it works. That's how, like you said, innovation ends up disrupting and then unseating you. So you have to, you have to build the process, but then you have to maintain it as well.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of talk about kind of minimum viable products, right? And I think everybody kind of understands that acronym. But at the end of the day, it's actually really hard to define what a minimum viable product is. And, you know, I bring this up because I think a number of mistakes I've made in my career around product management was more features equals better product, right? And, you know, we think about the word MVP, you know, you're trying to figure out, okay, what's that minimum feature set, right, that will get get the customers engaged, and, and at the end of the day, it's not really about the feature set, right, it's about the value you're creating for them, and so we have lots of discussions about, you know, how deep or shallow to be in certain feature areas and how wide or narrow, um, but again, it's about the experience the person has, the value they get, and it could be, you know, one simple feature that's just amazing, and the experience around that feature is so engaging that they want to keep coming back. So there's many facets I feel. Uh, and that's got me really excited about, you know, customer experience overall as kind of this umbrella of value that goes beyond the technology product.
0: Yeah, very well put. And uh, I want to thank you for being here, Stephen, but before I let you go, I have a couple questions for you. The first is what resources would you share with our audience about any of this subject matter or more about Synaptic or anything that, where they can go to learn more?
1: sure so first of all um you know i used to read a lot of books um, and my favorite you know kind of back in the day was good to great i really liked the concept of getting the right people on the bus so if you haven't read that that's that's a great one Uh, but more recently um i've been involved in in you know startup groups and uh, working with other ceos and and putting processes in place and probably the number one is this book called traction um um, so this is just a really great book and how to um, design and operate your business based on best practices and put in processes that help you measure, kind of going back to that data-driven stuff. How do you actually measure your company? And that um, you know, kind of leads on to scaling up, which is also kind of in that same vein. Um, another great book for entrepreneurs that want to start businesses. And then lastly, I um, recently met the author of this book called The Three Hag Way. But I think one of the challenges we have as entrepreneurs is we have this grand vision, right? And it's great to think about, you know, like an exit strategy and acquisition or how you're gonna make, you are going to make billions of dollars or whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, it's like really difficult to plot a course to get there and then stay on top of your plan and operate it. And this three-hag way has a lot of really you know, great ideas there. Um, as far as Synaptic, you know, our website is synaptic, S-Y-N-A-P-T-I-Q A-I. We've got a lot of great resources up there. We um, just finished up a summer, uh, summer webinar series. Um, around primarily healthcare innovation. So we talked about COVID in diagnostics, really interesting topics. Um, and we have a, a webinar actually next week on UX and AI. So I think there's, you know, this um, view right now that AI is just kind of a back end data thing, right? But at the end of the day, like delivering these, um, you know, recommendations or uh, predictions without a great user experience kind of misses the mark. Um, so there's some great resources there You know, would love to share them with everybody here and, and see what you
0: think. Excellent. Thank you for sharing. There's some really excellent books. Uh, I'm going to vote for all of those as well too. And then I will also link to the synaptic resources. So thank you for providing those. And then the last question I have for you is who should reach out to you and how can they get in touch?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm having lots of conversations, as I mentioned earlier, I wasn't really a sales guy until about five years ago and now I'm really enjoying it. So, Uh, whether it's, uh, you know, people that are interested in growing their careers in AI, I love talking to those type of people, giving some career advice, uh, even networking. But, you know, certainly from a, a business sales perspective, you know, we're looking around for, you know, CTOs, chief product officers, CIOs that are trying to drive innovation in their organizations. And while they may have an engineering team in place, they perhaps don't have the skills specifically in data strategy and data science and AI. And that's, those the type of people we'd like to talk about uh, project opportunities. So to reach out to me, it's just Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, at Synaptic.ai. Again, it's S-Y-N-A-P-T-I-Q.ai.
0: Thank you much for providing that, Stephen. we will link to that in the notes as well, too. And thank you for being here and sharing your knowledge and experience with both myself and our audience.
1: Great. Thanks for having me, Sean. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Product Launch Podcast, powered by Next Step. If you or anyone you know is involved in scaling a B2B SaaS business, please have them reach out to me about becoming a potential guest on our show. They can email me at sean@nextstep.io. sean at nextstep.io. That's S-E-A-N at this time, we'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our show, Next Step Consulting. Would you like to know what the right next steps are for your B2B SaaS business? Are you trying to grow and scale, but you're stuck? We can help. To find out how Next step can help your B2B SaaS business achieve its goals, please email me, sean at nextstep.io. That's S-E-A-N at N-X-T-S-T-E-P.io. Thanks, and keep disrupting.